wasn't recording. Oh. <laughs> you didn't record that? That was gold, Nick. You are you're out of luck now. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by how to schedule three people for a podcast. So we are uh, without Dr. Gill again for the next couple of episodes. He's actually, to be fair, he's he's probably going to be out for a little bit as he's got some, uh, some work-related stuff he's got to plow through. So we will be having some awesome, super exciting, amazing guests for a few episodes, but I am... Matt Fox from the Department of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here, as always, with Jen Ryder. Hello. And our special guest for the next couple of episodes is, and we do have to deal with the fact that we have two Jennifers, so you will be... Jennifer. There you go. Jennifer Weave, also from the Department of Epidemiology here at the BU School of Public Health. And as always, we are in the Godly Studio, where we recently learned you shouldn't lick things off the floor. So as a reminder, if you could go on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning. Uh, you'll find lots of really interesting, fun stuff over there. And as always, give us a give us an, a rating on iTunes or all your major podcast sites to help other people find us. I recently, well, I'll mention it probably later, but I got a, an email about the podcast. And I got to say, every time anyone takes the time to write in or send us a tweet, it really does make me so happy. So we love your feedback. Send it in. All right, so now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on getting herpes zoster. So that's shingles, getting shingles after exposure to chickenpox and whether or not it is in fact protective. And by exposure, I don't mean getting it the first time. I mean being exposed to someone else who has the chickenpox. Uh, then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about a, a paper on the impact of blinding on treatment effects in randomized trials, which I'll say up front uh, kind of surprised me and I'm a little scratching my head on. And then in our amazing and amusing segment, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or Jen will tell us about her dreams. And I wrote that Probably two weeks ago, and I don't know what it means anymore. Did you tell us about a dream? I did, about being chased by wild animals. That's exactly and what it was. And now you know what to do I in do. that situation. I do. Yes. Um, but this goes on. A, it goes to a theme, which is, uh, do you all, when you have something that uh, you want to remember, send yourself an email? No. You never uh, do that? On my calendar. Or make notes or yeah. anything? I have, I have a list no, no, on like, my phone. No, no, like a thing you want to do. So not, not necessarily a calendar event. You mean like... Visit a national park. No, no, like <laughs> remember to pick up the dry cleaning type oh, yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. I do this all the time, and I also never understand what they mean. So <laughs> I just was walking up here, and I have one in my email. It says laundry car. I don't have any laundry in my car. My car is not made of laundry, but there you go, laundry car. Do you have to so launder your car? It's entirely possible I do. All right. So let's get into segment one, where we're going to, as I said, we're going to talk about an article that looks at the impact of uh, exposure to someone with the chicken pox on the risk of developing herpes zoster, otherwise known as shingles, published in the British Medical Journal. And it was entitled Risk of Herpes Zoster After Exposure to Varicella to Explore the Exogenous Boosting Hypothesis, colon, 
self-controlled case series study using UK electronic healthcare data by first author Harriet Forbes of the Faculty of Epidemiology and Population Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I believe this is the first ever self-controlled case series we've talked about. First one I've read, yeah. I think. And I always think that if I was a if I was a study design, I would be the lack of self-controlled yes. case series design. <laughs> but uh We'll go from there. Uh, so uh, here's some headlines. Physician briefing says adult exposure to chickenpox cuts shingles risk. Everyone's favorite Breitbart says parents of children with chickenpox less likely to develop shingles. Medical Express says adult exposure to chickenpox linked to lower risk of shingles but does not provide full protection. That's a pretty detailed one. And Eureka Alert says adult exposure to chickenpox link. Oh, it's exactly the same. I somehow copied the exact mm-hmm. same thing. Somebody should really edit these things for me. All right. Well, Jen, can you start by giving us the overview of this study? Tell us what they did and what it's all about. I sure can. So I know that I got a little mixed up on some of the terminology here. So yeah, all the zosters too. floating around, I found a bit confusing. or literally? <laughs> Both. <laughs> so as Matt mentioned, infection with varicella zoster leads to varicella, which is commonly known as the chicken pox. And that, as, as all of us are familiar with, primarily affects children. But herpes zoster, which is commonly known as shingles, results from reactivation of latent varicella zoster in the setting primarily of low cell-mediated immunity. This often occurs many, many years after the primary infection, and shingles can often be really mild and self-limited, but we probably all have, all know someone who's had some complications from shingles. Oh, not complications, but I had shingles, and it was... It no was, fun. It was no joke. Yeah. I was, I was out for the count for a good two weeks. Okay. That sounds horrible. Um, It can also lead to these syndromes like Ramsey-Hunt, which causes facial paralysis and hearing loss. So it can be very, very serious. There is something called the exogenous boosting hypothesis. Which I think is so cool. I do too. This was initially proposed by Roger Edgar Hope Simpson way back in 1965. And it's the idea that immunity to varicella zoster virus is boosted through exposure to contacts with varicella. And that's really where the idea from this study emerged. So a varicella vaccine has been available as early as 1970. So that's Mm the vaccine for the chicken pox, but it didn't become part of routine childhood vaccination programs in many countries, including the UK, New Zealand, and China. And in fact, the US is the only country that has a universal two-dose varicella vaccination program. Uh, And that was introduced in 2007, so pretty recently. One concern is, and the reason that other countries haven't adopted this into their universal vaccination programs, is the potential impact on future herpes zoster cases, at least temporarily after we eliminated the varicella zoster virus. So 
studies in general support this whole idea of exogenous boosting, but it's less well understood how much protection is actually conferred from re-exposure to varicella through infected contacts and how long it lasts. And modeling-based approaches predict a higher incidence of zoster after varicella vaccination as a result of that reduction in exogenous boosting that would peak sometime like two or three decades after vaccination. But in the U.S., where we have actually had this universal program in place for a couple of decades now, data indicate that zoster actually began increasing before the availability of universal vaccination, and that increases have been similar since then. And there's also other changes that you have to take into account, like differences in the population structure. So, you know, lower birth rates and um, more older people. And now, complicating things further, there are shingles vaccines available. So there are two different vaccines available, and the CDC currently recommends that adults 50 and older get two doses of one of those called Shingrits. Shingrix. Shingrix, right? Sure. Shingrix. (laughs) It sounds like a cereal. (laughs) It does. Very, yeah, healthy and crunchy and delicious. I'm I'm not buying those. So the objective of this study was to address the sparse and somewhat contradictory evidence about this exogenous boosting hypothesis and to evaluate the degree and duration of any protective effect of household exposure to a child with chickenpox on future incidents of shingles. So as Matt mentioned, they used this cool study design that I had heard of, but didn't really know much about, called a self-controlled case series analysis. And in this design, individuals act as their own control. So other examples of those types of designs would be like case crossover studies. Mm -hmm. But this Mm -hmm. differs from a case crossover study, which is better for situations where the exposure is intermittent and the risk on the outcome is immediate. Here we're talking about something that could occur decades after after exposure. So all participants in this study design have both the exposure, so living with a child in the household who had the chicken pox, and the outcome. So they all had shingles. It's just a matter of timing. So that's really what they're looking at. Yep. So what they do is they take the observation period following each exposure for each case, and they divide that into different risk periods. So, you know, the number of years in this case. And then there's also a control period, which is everything outside of those different risk periods, both before and after exposure. And then they basically look at incidence rates um, for development of shingles in those different periods, exposed periods and unexposed periods. A few assumptions about this study design. So you're assuming the outcome events are independent. The outcome doesn't affect the probability of being exposed. And the outcome doesn't censor the observation period. So that, of course, would be violated if you were likely to die after you you had shingles. So they included 9,604 adults living in the UK who had a diagnosis of shingles in their primary care or hospital records between 1997 and 2018. Who were also exposed to somebody. Mm -hmm. Who were also, during their observation period, living with a child who had a diagnosis of the chickenpox. The majority of the participants, so 68.6%, were women. 
And they were using the UK clinical practice database to, to obtain this information. The observation period, so defining those different risk periods is probably the most important part of this design. So the observation period started at the latest of either 12 months after inclusion in the clinical practice research database. So that was to make sure that uh, these were new cases of shingles. The date the patient became 18 or April 1997. And then the observation period ended on the earliest date of the person's date of death, the date they left the practice, or the last day of data collection from the practice, or July 2018. For every participant, they specified the pre-exposure period, the risk periods, and the baseline or unexposed periods. So the pre-exposure period was the 60 days prior to exposure to the child with varicella because the chickenpox, this is where it got confusing, the chickenpox <laughs> could have resulted from an underlying case of shingles in the adult, and which, they didn't want that to happen. Which came first, the chickenpox or, or the, the shingles? Chicken, I knew yes. someone had to do yeah. that mm -hmm. eventually. I'm glad you just got right. it out of the way. You're welcome. That's um, what I'm here for. Okay, so that was the pre-exposure period. Then there was the risk or exposure periods, and those were all those were five windows within the 20 years following exposure to the child with chickenpox. So zero to two years, two to five years, five to ten years, and ten to twenty years. And the methods assume that there's constant risk within those different time windows. And then the baseline or unexposed periods were all other observation time. So both prior to that pre-exposure window and any other time after the 20-year period. One interesting thing they did was as a negative control, they used the same approach, but they used it to investigate the association between exposure to a child with acute gastroenteritis and future risk of shingles, which was a nice, nice addition, I thought. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And then for covariates, because of the study design, you really only have to think about time varying factors. So they considered age, calendar time, and season, because everything else would be controlled for within a person. And then they looked at age, sex, and immunosuppression as potential effect modifiers. So in terms of their results, the median age of exposure to a child with varicella was 38.3 years. Their age of first shingles diagnosis was 41.1 years as a median, which is young, younger. That's quite young. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, 40 is incredibly really young. young. I think it's... Just I would have thought it would would have been older. I mean, not Nick Young, but <laughs> yeah. you know, pretty young. And then the median observation period was fourteen point seven years. Four thousand one hundred sixty-six adults developed. So remember, they all had shingles, but four thousand one hundred sixty-six developed shingles in the baseline period. 433 within the 60 days before exposure, and then five thousand fifty-five during the risk period. After adjustment for age, risk of developing shingles was 33% lower within the two years of exposure to varicella compared to someone's baseline or unexposed time. And that protection lasted through the 20-year risk period, but decreased a bit. So in the 10 to 20-year window post-exposure, the risk reduction was 27%. Results were stronger in men than in women, but there was no... Maybe. We'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But there was no evidence of effect modification by age or immunosuppression status. 
And then it's interesting, 17% of the participants had repeated exposure to a child with varicella, and repeat exposures also led to a reduced risk of of shingles, but it didn't really seem as though it varied according to how many exposures you'd had. In that negative control analysis with gastroenteritis, they found no association. And the sensitivity analysis that they did showed that how they defined that pre-exposure window was actually quite important. So a shorter pre-exposure window of 30 days resulted in much stronger results. So it seemed like the protective effect of exposure to a child with chickenpox was even greater, and a longer window attenuated the results. So the authors conclude that at the very least, models used to estimate the impact of varicella vaccination need to be updated to reflect the less than perfect protection against shingles after varicella exposure. Which is really pretty interesting. I will. So before I hand this over, I will just say that I wasn't sure when we first picked this study out whether or not this was one that we wanted to do. And after reading it, I loved reading this. Without saying whether or not I buy the results, I will say that I think this is the the Beyonce of studies in that it just has, it's got so much goodness to it. And if it put out an album, I would buy it. But there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here, one of which is not directly relevant to the study, but I just think it's an interesting phenomenon worth mentioning, which is that when you when you think about vaccination programs in general for infectious diseases, often infectious diseases are mild in kids, but are more severe the older that you get. And so chickenpox is one of those one of those diseases for which it's a very mild infection. It's annoying. I had it when I was a kid. You guys have it? Yes. Yes. But it, you know, it's it's not. How a, old were you? Uh, I'm gonna guess six or seven. Okay, so you were younger. I've got oh, yeah. I, we had chicken pox parties. Oh, what? I got to okay. my, have chicken pox with my my best friend. Yep. <laughs> and then my sister and his brother got it from us, and they got sick and missed Halloween. So I, then I had to go door to door asking for an extra piece of candy for my friends. And so did my friends. So we're both there saying, uh, can we have an extra one? And they're like, I just heard that story. I don't buy it. Um, that's a little bit of overshare. But, but anyway, so the thing is, when you, so when you introduce a vaccine, you have to be really careful because when you introduce the vaccine, you reduce the transmission such that people aren't exposed at young ages anymore. On mm-hmm. average, the average age goes up. Yeah. Even though there are fewer cases overall, the cases can be more severe. This happens with um, rubella. If you don't have a, a really good vaccination program for rubella, the average age of infection goes up. And rubella is most serious for pregnant women because you can get congenital rubella syndrome. So you either have to like wipe it out or just not do it at all. And that, so, you know, in that sense, chickenpox vaccination was, was a bit controversial. Anyway, this, but this has so much going on in the self-controlled case series, in the negative control, in the, like, there's just there's a lot here. And I, I really enjoyed this. So Jennifer, give us your take. Well, I would like to go back to the whole concern about the varicella vaccine. Can we just review that? Yeah. Please. So, so essentially the idea is if we widely use this vaccine, then fewer people will have been exposed 
and a few older people will have been exposed to their children with varicella and will not have this exo- ex- exogenous boosting. Is that was that the concern? The, the the concern I was just raising. Yeah. No, 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 no. 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 Had, well, had, it's expressed in this paper. No, though. no, no, no. I was getting at yeah. something different, yeah, which is okay. just in general. If you introduce a vaccine, if you get you get 100 percent coverage sure. and you have a vaccine that is 100 percent effective, mm-hmm. then we have no problem. The disease right. goes away. Mm-hmm. But vaccines are never 100 percent effective. You never get 100 percent of the people mm-hmm. vaccinated. So you have a pocket of people who are. Mm-hmm. Are are just not protected. Right. The chickenpox. Now I'm not talking about shingles, but just mm-hmm. chickenpox is now circulating, but it's it's transmitting very slowly because mm-hmm. there aren't that many susceptible people. Right. And so the average person who's getting infected is, is older. much older than they would have before you introduced the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have very very few people being infected, but of those who are, they're at higher risk for complications from chickenpox, not right. shingles, mm-hmm. in this case, just because they're older. Okay. And so you just have to be careful with, with vaccines. But I think the issue you raised was brought up in the paper. That yes. Part yes. of the rationale for not introducing these yeah. vaccination programs is that actually keeping chickenpox around is good for people in terms of avoiding shingles. And you said that was the Homer Simpson hypothesis? Uh, <laughs> it was... <laughs> I think it's Hope Simpson. Yeah, it was close. All right. So anyway, give us your, yeah, give us your take yeah. on the study. Yeah. So actually, it was hard not to read this and remember having chickenpox myself and, and the, dev- the devastating effect, which was that I had to not be in the fifth grade musical as a featured dancer. Oh, <laughs> that, is, that is trap. I mean, not just a regular, that featured. A featured. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. It's in Pierce Elementary School, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So I found this really interesting as well because of what it implied about the impact of vaccination apart from those who are vaccinated in even their same age peers. I had not thought about the other people, adults in the household and either the benefits they would accrue, not just, well, they'd accrue by having their kid be sick uh, as opposed to the benefits they accrue by not having a sick kid. Right. So, so in fact, I was really intrigued with the study design, and I would love to talk about that more as well. Yeah, the self-controlled case series study, which I immediately went to a case crossover design. I thought, wait, why are they not calling that this? And I appreciate your well, review of that. Well, so, so, so this is yeah. these these designs are are fairly common in the in the vaccine world, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the crossover study mm-hmm. is essentially you 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 look at a person before they're exposed and after they're exposed. The self-controlled case series is essentially, I think of as the case control version of that, where you look at people who got the outcome and you mm-hmm. look at periods before and after. So it's just a different different approach to the same problem. Right. And so there were all these sort of like laser beams shooting at my head or out of my head, at my head, because I'm thinking, oh my goodness, everyone in this had the outcome and they had the exposure. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't seem right, right? But it is. Like, ah, you know, just, you know, red marks everywhere. But <laughs> You're right, which is, different, which is different than the case crossover. Yeah. Because they're, you know, everyone, everyone has the, has the outcome. Everyone has the outcome. Everyone has the outcome. Everyone, everyone is a case in that, you know, yes. think, I'm thinking yes. about the, the examples of... Like pot smoking. Air pollution. Okay. Yeah. So snow shoveling and snow MI, shoveling. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, I think, my classroom example. And so yep. everyone is experienced in MI, and you're looking at whether or not they were more likely to snow shovel just prior to their MI. Right. Yes. So it requires yeah. that really, you know, that immediate effect of the exposure on the outcome. Yeah. Whereas this, you know, we get to look at 20-year windows. 
Yeah, and yeah. in this case, I, yeah, I, I, so actually, it's one of the things I wanted to bring up. So, do you think? And I, I'll just just put it out there that I, I, I actually buy the results of the study, even though I have some, some issues with it. But it does seem to me that that one problem you have here is this is in some senses hopelessly confounded by age. Yes. And when I say hopelessly, what I mean is, you know, when you think about the pre-period and the post-period, the the period before is by definition. You're always younger. You're younger. You're always younger. <laughs> that doesn't matter. On. That doesn't. That doesn't particularly matter if you're talking about a short time window. That's right. We're talking about 20 years, so that's why they yep. included the post period, the, yes. the period after the 20 years, as another control window. Yes. But it is. It, it's. It's. Very confounded, and it matters a lot because zoster is something that is typically a disease of people who are older, and me apparently, and so you, you have this very strong and you and me, who is very young. Uh, you have this strong confounding by age, and you can see it because actually, when they look at their crude analysis, mm-hmm. there was uh, a much a, stronger yes. effect. There was a reverse effect, right? It there was flipped. a it flipped. The, the effect flipped. So the. the 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 exposure to a child with zoster was harmful yes. in the unadjusted analysis. When they control for age, you it flips back to being protective, which is really cool and interesting. But I do wonder whether you've really removed all of the age effect. And in fact, maybe it's even more protective than we than we see. And you just have this mm-hmm. age confounding because it's going to be really hard. Well, I mean, go, going back to that assumption that within those risk windows – you're assuming that within those five windows, the risk is the same. And one of those windows is 10 years long. And my 40-year-old self and 50-year-old self probably do not have the same risk of of developing shingles. Especially if there are more children in your household over that that period of time. That is is also, well, although they did find that repeat exposure didn't really matter, but, but I don't know. But yeah. At the very least, yeah. you're 10 years older. Yeah. And so it seems yeah. to me it's, it, you know, the self-controlled mm-hmm. designs mm-hmm. are really good at controlling time-independent confounders. Really good. Part of why I just, I love this this design, but they don't control for time-independent confounding. Now, it is probably worth just saying it's really good at controlling time-independent confounding. Why don't we use it for everything? It's for the reasons that you mentioned in the beginning, which is it only works for things that are exposures that have transient effects. You can't, you can't look at heart, you know, heart disease. You can look at, you know, transient heart effects, but you can't look at things Things that that, kill you. Yeah. You can't look at an outcome that that kills you. That are long-term processes. Well, and I mean, I think they, they bring it up in the discussion, but the assumption that these events are independent yep. also is problematic. And they admit yep. this because of course, you know, your immune status, you know, someone who right. is, who gets shingles is more likely to have mm-hmm. another event. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, so yeah. And you're thinking about that. I thought I was hung up on the age thing too. And I wondered how much it really mattered. And I was thinking about the direction it would push things if there was, if we could discern that. Hmm. And, and I was trying to think of other things that would vary over time and matter. And that would be anything else that's going on in the environment. Maybe there are transitions over time in the circulation of this virus. Maybe there's differences in healthcare that emerge required vaccinations. And And again, I'm not sure it matters, but I think that these are good exercises for us to go through when we're thinking about this study design. Like what really is plausible as a source of confounding versus 
what isn't. And it's, it's, yeah. it's a really good point because they do actually say, no, this was in the UK, but this in the US, there was actually a decline in incidence of, no, increase in incidence of, of zoster going oh, on over the time period during which the vaccination program was underway. So there are, are secular trends, and I don't totally understand yeah. how that plays out mm-hmm. in a self-controlled case series. Other thoughts? Yeah. No, just that I did. I thought it was a really cool study. I mean, I I love to learn about a new study design. And yeah, yeah, it was just, I don't know. I thought it was nicely written, except for the zoster zoster thing, which confused me. (laughs) It's it's varicella varicella. Um, I do think, I think we want to go back to the negative control. I can't remember if we, do we call this a negative control or negative exposure? I don't even remember. But because in this case, it's the, you're, you're looking for an exposure that wouldn't be associated with the outcome. Some, I think negative controls were looking for an outcome. And maybe we should start calling them negative exposures and negative outcomes think, instead of I control. Because, are, yeah. yeah, I think there's, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And the idea being that you wouldn't expect a exposure to, you know, a, a kid with, with GI to be leading to an increase in zoster. And that's exactly what they found. And it gives you some confidence that maybe the confounding that I'm concerned about isn't too bad. And so I thought that was a nice, a really nice additional feature. I, my point is, I thought there was a lot of thoughtfulness to this study Definitely. that, that yeah. really gave me a lot of confidence. And it seemed to be a really good way to answer this question. Yeah. Like, yeah. right? Like, I think right, it really right, was right the appropriate the right design for the question they wanted to answer. I yes. thought it was great. Yes. I do worry about misclassification in this particular study because, right. mm-hmm. you know, lots of cases of, of chicken pox are never, I don't know whether or not I probably went to my doctor's office when I had chicken pox. I don't know whether people all people do though. So mm-hmm. then you may be missing cases of chicken pox. That seems likely be, to me. Especially yeah. in those mild yeah. cases, a parent could look at that and say, you know, yeah, it's probably chicken right. Yeah. Especially if they're it's gonna the give you an oatmeal kid. bath. You yeah. know, it's yeah. Not so serious. I, ne- I never got an oatmeal bath. You didn't? Oh, no. Was it that? Was it? It wasn't like the maple and brown sugar. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We just we got fruit loop baths. That's all we got. We no, never... What about Shingrix baths? No, we never got those either. That probably would have would have been a good idea. Okay. Um, any 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 last? Oh, and that but that does make you think. So if the if the issue is that we are under ascertaining cases of exposure to a kid with chicken box. Mm-hmm. The ones that are probably going to end up in the database are the most severe cases. And I wonder if the most severe cases are shedding more virus, therefore there's more Seems boosting. Likely. Yeah. And this is, this is what they mentioned as well. And so there might yeah. be, it may be that the, in, in that sense, this is an overestimated effect size because yes. You know, this is these are the extreme shingles or the more extreme uh, not shingles uh, chicken box cases that are giving you a big dose of now, exposure right, right. that you might not get if your kid just had a really mild case. But but what about so we know you know so it seems like there's not complete protection from being exposed to a child, but some. I mean, do you think it's enough to say, you know, maybe we should keep chicken pox circulating? I mean, is like let's say I, you really believe that it was a third, you know, you reduce your uh, risk of shingles by a third. Is that important enough to say? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. I don't know. So I, I, obviously there are cases of chicken pox that are severe and are problematic, but in general, it's a, it's a mild infection in childhood. And I think the, a lot of the impetus for the vaccine program was around the fact that it, it what it does is it, it gets kids out of school it can, yes. and it, it, 
parents lose time from work and all of yes. those things. So it's a, it's a nuisance that has consequences. But if you were to factor in the fact that the vaccination program leads to a reduction in incident, a reduction in protection from shingles, the cost benefit calculation changes somewhat. I think we'd want probably before you'd ever be able to make that calculation that you'd want better you'd want more data on this to figure out exactly what the effect size is. Because again, we I do think these are not the the mild cases and you might not get such a big benefit. If it turns out the effect is small, maybe the, the vaccination program is worth it. I mean, in terms specifically of, you know, sort of thinking through the cost benefit, people may just want the vaccine because they don't want to deal with it. But it, it is something I think that, that would factor into those calculations. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, you know, having the varicella vaccine versus not, that's not the those are not the only two options. You also have this program where you have varicella vaccine and shingrits. You have the shingles vaccine. And maybe that's even a better program and it answers some of these questions or addresses some of these shortcomings of um, But you, shingrits, Matt, yes. you weren't eligible for yeah, shingrits. Been, yeah. I was not eligible. And I have actually talked to my doctor and my doctor told me that when I turn 50, 20 years from now, I should get it <laughs> because I've had my shingles. Yeah. So it's on my to-do list. Literally, I sent myself an email. <laughs> it said it laundry, laundry shingles. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, exactly what it said. All um, right, any, okay, any wait, last wait, thoughts yeah. before we? So, so you know about the state, state design, yeah. great. But could we do this study in the United States? Do we have enough linkage of kids' medical records and nope. their parents? I mean, it seems almost impossible. No. It is a fantasy that we could wait around <laughs> for 20 years in the same health system and drag up those direct records. No, um, you're, you're 100% right. And we didn't talk. I mean, one of the things I noted was the G, the GPRD, the, the General Practice yeah. Practitioners Data Research Database. I forget what it's called, but this British database of and not everyone participates. I mean, what's interesting? I mean, it's like it, it is still a small portion. Nine exactly. percent of the population, very yeah. small. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so one last thing I want to talk about before we move on, which is uh, you said because they said, but you said that the effect is larger. I just believe everything I read. I'm I mean, totally they said with you. it. They I'm said totally it. With you. So I said I'm it. Totally. It's in print. You, you, you need to read my new blog then. That says. <laughs> The way to live long and healthy is to give all your money to that. So they say that the effect is larger in men than women? They say that the effect is... Hold on, hold on. Well, I can can tell you. Yeah. Because I can tell you the effect in men was... Oh, stronger in men than women. Yeah, it's roughly 0.55 in men in the first two years and 0.74 in women. But that's a relative relative effect. Yes. There are a lot more shingles in women than in men. There are also more women than men in this database. So you can't, you can't, right. they don't give us enough information to make the calculation exactly. But there are three times as many cases, almost, in women than in men. So on the absolute scale, the effect is larger in women than in men. And the absolute scale from a public health perspective is the one that matters. I feel like I see this. So often that yeah. people people will make this claim that the effect is larger in one group than the mm-hmm. other, and it's usually actually the reverse when you look at it. Uh, when they're going on the relative scale, it's usually it's often the reverse when you look at it on the absolute scale, and we miss that all the time. And it matters because it would inform. Let's say you were only going to give this to men or women. Well, give this exposure to shingle to a kid with 
Let's let's just here. Men hold this child. Yeah. <laughs> men, you are the one who need to hold these kids yeah. with chickenpox. I, d- I we didn't would, find okay, that, that particular like that analysis, <laughs> that attempt to look at effect modification that interesting. Anyway, because it's not really telling us about something biological. It's probably just telling us about how much more contact the moms had with their household um, member than you know than that they were more likely to. To oh. get shingle. I mean, no offense to all the dads Aww. out there. I'm sure they're taking good that, care of their kids with really, chickenpox. But yeah. I don't know if it really tells us anything interesting either way. But well, it certainly doesn't yeah. tell you anything about what you do about it. You would not say, guys, it's time for you to step up with your ching- kids with, chick- with chickenpox. And I don't know what. Yeah, so it, it raises this or reminds me of this additional explanation we have for seeing these kinds of so-called interactions. One is a scale-based one, which you mentioned. But the other is differences in measurement quality across the two different groups. So what if we're mismeasuring uh, the exposure in women more? Mismeasuring? Or uh, exposure. Oh, so so the case of shingles comes in, they're more likely to have a child diagnosed with chickenpox linked to their record if, if they're a man, they're a, say a man or a woman. Oh, one I just of the meant other. that the women's exposure just might for every any given child they're exposed to is higher because they oh, have the more actual, cl- not the classification. Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, I think that was, yeah. That's yeah, but, but I mean, if, you know, if a mom or a dad, a female or male household member is more likely to bring their kid to the doctor to have their chicken pox diagnosed. I mean, that could yeah. also explain the association. And it doesn't yeah. seem a really interesting point. unlikely right. that, that that could happen. I would agree right. with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Last word then for me, which is two things. This is one of my pet peeves. Is it, do you think it is sufficient to use the phrase, we use standard self-controlled case series analytic techniques? Or standard anything techniques. I read that and I thought, wow, am I supposed to know this? Yeah. 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 I felt left out of that club. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not in that club either. Yeah. The standard self-controlled case series club. Yeah. Um, A little snarky, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just think that's one of those things that people use when they don't want to give you the, like when they don't want to explain the details and we just use the standard approach. But I I mean, I've probably complained about this before, but in reviewing papers, people will say, you know, this study has all the limitations of a retrospective analysis. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And last one, uh, they referred to the self-controlled case series as a, quote, relatively novel method what do you what's your take on that is it a relatively or is it an absolutely (laughs) novel method all right so let's move on into our second segment where we are going to talk about the impact of blinding on the effect sizes in clinical trials so this was a another study in the another study in the british medical journal yeah the last one was in the british medical journal too oh i keep calling it the british medical journal it's the bmj now right it is not Oh, really? The acronym is... I think it's just BMJ. Like JAMA. JAMA is now JAMA. I could be and wrong, but really? I think it's just ah. BMJ. I think it's just BMJ. Anyway, it's entitled The Impact of Blinding on Estimated Treatment Effects in Randomized Clinical Trials by first author Helen Musgard. And the basic idea here is that what they did was they went to the Cochrane reviews. So Cochrane is where they do these meta-analyses on pretty much everything you could ever think of. And they have these very standardized methods for reviewing the data and deciding what's good enough to go into a meta-analysis. And what they did was they reviewed the 
meta-analyses, and they looked to see whether or not for particular exposure outcome pairs, whether or not the people doing the ascertainment of information in the studies were blinded. So whether the person in the study was blinded to what treatment they were getting, whether or not the person ascertaining the information was blinded, whether the analysis was blinded. And I'm not going to go through all the all the detailed results that they found, partly because it's confusing. Um, it, the results, the way they're presented, are not presented in a way that's easy to explain, but they're, I think they're perfectly meaningful. But what matters is the conclusion, which is they reviewed 142 different meta-analyses, and what they found was on average, no difference in estimated treatment effects between trials with and without blinded patients, healthcare providers, or outcome assessors. In other words, blinding made no difference. Now, typically, we think that blinding is something that is essential to be able to get comparable effects between groups. That if a person knows, say, I'm in a randomized trial, I know that I'm getting the experimental drug, so I do better, either because it's a subjective outcome, so I just report to you my pain's getting better because I want the drug to do well, or if it's uh, not necessarily a subjective outcome, but it's something that there is some kind of a, just a an effect of, of knowing that you're getting this drug and that helps you, um, whatever it is. And this would seem to refute that. So let's start with just the obvious question, which is, do you buy it? Do you buy that based on these results that blinding really doesn't matter that much, at least for the types of things that were analyzed in clinical trials. And I suppose we should say that things that go into clinical trials tend to be things that are much more, you know, drugs that, that for which the effect may, you know, be easier to diagnose. The outcomes tend to be harder outcomes, things like death and, and heart attacks and things like that. But if you actually look and you read the study, there are lots of things in there that are actually subjective, pain, mm -hmm. mental health outcomes, yeah. things like that. So I don't know. You buy I it? I mean, I was very surprised reading this that there was no effect. And and I really, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing obvious to me that jumps out that says, you know, this is why they didn't see an effect. And like you said, that it wasn't just the, you know, softer outcomes, but also, you know, mortality, all kinds of different outcomes and both types of bias that they looked at, one of which I had to refresh myself on. So there's the obvious detection bias, uh, yep. but right. then there's the other one that is performance bias. Mm -hmm. And that's what mm -hmm. you were describing of, you know, someone yep. doing better just because they have knowledge of what group they were, they were in. But no, I, I, I can't explain it, but it seems surprising. And, you know, this is one of the ways that folks, you know, try to disparage observational research. <laughs> because and they are not typically blinded. Because they are not typically blinded. Yep, yep. Yeah. And this would suggest that's, that's unfair. So the, okay. So they, they report these effect sizes, which are, again, are hard to interpret because mm -hmm. they don't, it's not like a regular effect size, but they report the effect of blinding, effect of blinding. They don't say effect. I do. Um, relative odds ratio of 0 0.91 with a 95% credible interval because they did a Bayesian analysis from 0 0.6.1 to 1.38. That isn't exactly no effect, right. right? That isn't, it's just somewhat of a benefit, small, with a very imprecise or, or an imprecise result. So I don't know. It, and now that, of course, was for patient-reported outcomes. It was only it was 0 0.98 in the 14 meta-analyses with outcomes reported by blinded observers. So maybe there is a little something to it. Uh, I don't know. 
Jennifer? Yeah. So let's just go over an example of one of these results. So there's in the subset of meta. So this, again, is a an, it is a meta epidemiologic study. So it is an it is like a meta analysis of meta analyses. That's so meta. That's so meta. So one of the relative odds ratios was 0.91. And this was comparing blind, blinded studies versus not blinded studies. So basically what we're saying or what they're saying is that the blinded studies found larger or more protective associations. Is that correct? Um, no? I I wasn't the yeah. I have to admit I struggle a little bit to understand yeah. how to actually yeah. interpret that. But I, I but I would say there's a difference. Yes, there's, there's a, difference. a difference. Okay, yeah, and that isn't the direction I would have expected. Wait, if so the ROR for lack of blinding was 0.91. Yeah. So if you don't oh, blind, blind, you get a stronger okay. Okay. effect. So, right. so I think not, that is that's probably yeah. identifying what they the reference condition. <laughs> It's tricky. It's tricky. But the wording, I, I mean, it was it was yes. a little hard okay. to digest. And that yeah. was why that was why I didn't go through the results because I thought I would just confuse everyone. <laughs> just hit the main point, which well, is that it. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and that's. I think this is important to understand. Even if even if these do not seem like there are large differences, to see if the differences make any sense yeah. intuitively. And I, for that, I guess it does. You know, not blinded studies, perhaps finding somewhat exaggerated associations yeah. or affected effect estimates. And you know, there's this question. It raises a question, which is okay. Let's let's suppose that these are mostly not affected by any sort of bias, is blinding really blinding? Are people really blind? <laughs> Hold on. Hold on, the room's spinning. What was that? What was it's, that? It's because of the light, Matt. It's the light. It's is, blinding you. Is, is blinding really blinding? Is epidemiology really epidemiology? What do you mean by is blinding no, really that blinding? Is such a, is it, I think it's such a great point. I don't, I don't get people the point People are yet. smarter than the oh, blinding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So people yep. are smart. Maybe. maybe but, but often what you'll see in really not good, but a lot of trials, what they will do is they will actually do a survey and they'll ask people, yes. do you know what, whether you got the intervention yeah. or the, or the, the control and people will get, you know, people will give them an answer and they'll say that they know. And then you find that, that actually the probability of guessing the right answer is 50%, sure. exactly what you would expect if they yeah. were just guessing. Okay. Um, I think it depends on the, I wouldn't say I see that all the time though. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. But could you then take these results, again, assuming that they're yeah. correct, and adjust your fine, you know, so we have the E value. Could could we yeah. have the B value? The, the B, the okay. bi, the B. You guys can all steal my idea bling value. For, the, for the B value. The bling um, value. Blending value. Okay. Uh, yeah. Copyright. Well, okay. So my, I will give you an anecdote because we're epidemiologists. We believe in anecdotes. So my. Believe, every my, epidemiologist knows that. Data is the plural of anecdote. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So my father-in-law was a participant in the physician's health study. Cool. This is this was a trial of aspirin, low-dose aspirin, and I think they threw some other things in there, but aspirin. And he tells me one day, he's well, he's very proud. He was also in a at a shingles trial as well. Wow. He's, he got around. So uh, <laughs> was it Shingrix? <laughs> I, I believe it was. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So uh, he told me, he said, I, I'm pretty sure I know what group I was in. And he and, and at the end, they reveal to the participants of the Physicians of Health Study. Well, not they, even at the end, right? They stopped well, it early. After they stopped the, yeah, yeah the, the, uh, trial the trial part. And he was right. Yeah, he was right. 
But again, 50% of people will be right, even if they're just guessing. Yeah, you know, this is an anecdote. And so <laughs> <laughs> he was a whole person. Oh, <laughs> so he wasn't half right. But he he <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear he was a whole person. That is thoroughly reassuring, actually. But he, he, but he said, though, it was based on his perception of what aspirin would be doing to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. do, I do accept that and there... And his medical knowledge of that, yeah. Yeah, I do accept that there would be some interventions for which mm-hmm. you would you would feel like you could tell whether or not you're getting the intervention. Right, especially mm-hmm. among a trial of physicians. Yes. It seems like they would be yes. more likely to yeah. be aware of that. Yep. Okay, I, another question. Do you think there's a chance that blinding is actually just a marker for quality of the study? That Now, my response to myself on this would be, (laughs) if that were the case, then you would think that better studies, well, actually, I don't know. I was going to say better studies would more likely to be, would show larger effects, but actually maybe they wouldn't. They wouldn't show exaggerated effects. So maybe it is. Maybe, Maybe blinding is a marker for quality of study in some sense, but I don't know but I don't know why that you essentially get close well, they, to a null result. Well, yeah. I mean, that makes sense when you think about it in terms of publication bias, that in order for a study without an effect to be published, it probably does have to be a better study, right? Yep. And in that way, yeah, yeah, yeah. it mm-hmm. could be, mm-hmm. blinding could be a marker, huh. you know, since these are all published meta-analyses. Right. Good point. Okay. Last question then. Should we just all stop blinding? It does involve a lot of work, a lot of extra work. Okay, you're going to get kicked out of the epidemiologist <laughs> club if you say that. Just being provocative. But I let's, clearly let's have that, I study nothing that, that can be, ex- can be studied with a trial. When the, when the epidemiology police come knocking on your door, don't say I didn't warn yeah, you. Yeah, I'm going to get kicked out of this. That's all I'm saying. Are you say, oh, a heretic. I'm totally into that. Can I be the heretic? You can. You absolutely can. All right, shall we move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, and we exempted Jennifer from this one, so it's just the two of us. Jen, you want to go? You want to go first? Sure, absolutely. So mine is about leap years, mm. which we just experienced, and I don't know. I feel like having a five-year-old son. You know, his job is to ask me a lot of questions that I probably should know the answers that is to, the and, job. and don't. And so, you know, he was asking me how often they happen. And I knew every four years, but it turns out that is an oversimplification because it takes the earth 365.2422 days to spin around the earth, not 0.25. And so it's not, so we don't, it does add up. So apparently the rule, I had no idea, is that there's some other tweaks. So I learned this all in the New York Times. It was published a couple of weeks ago. If a year is divisible by 100, there is no extra day unless the year is also (gasps) divisible by 400. So year 2000 was a leap year, but 1900 was not, and neither will 2100 be. Whoa. I know. Who knew? I know. I thought it was so simple. And then it becomes even more complicated on Mars. Oh, no. Believe me. Every time time you have to change the clocks on Mars, I am just confused for days. But but what's funny about this article is they said there have actually been more proposals about how to deal with the calendar in Mars than, (laughs) than for the U.S. Like, people are much more interested in that. So... It takes. You do not, the reason for that is, if you're on Mars, you do not want to miss your flight back. <laughs> so 
on Mars, a year a year lasts six hundred and sixty eight point six Martian days. Wait, how long is a Martian day? Uh, yeah. Well, that's just the time it takes for Mars to spin around. But how long is that? <laughs> No, that's that's another amazing and amazing. Okay, that's next week or the week after. So if the year was only six hundred and sixty-eight days, you know, of course it's going to quickly not add up, right? It's going to you're going to be out of alignment. Yeah. And so one Martian calendar proposal is called the Darien calendar. It was created in 1985 by Thomas Gangale, who is a Space law expert. Mm. Wow. Fields I never considered. Yep. So the year is, the Martian year is 24 months of 27 or 28 Martian days. And they, they alternate. And then, but even numbered years have 668 Martian days, except for those divisible by 10. And then odd number years have 669 Martian days, which works out to an average of 668.6 days. Wow. People spend a lot of time thinking about stuff I never think think about. how young you'd be on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have to get the shingles vaccine (laughs) until I was... Oh, no way. I'd have to get it earlier. I'd have to get it at like... 15. Oh, man. No, 25. 25. I'd have to get it about that, 25. That's good math in your head. Yeah, I'm yeah, impressed yeah. that you can do that's that. I, yeah. I'm, uh, that is he okay. did not lift up a cell phone <laughs> no, or a calculator nope. to do that. All right. Uh, you guys Harry Potter fans? Mm. No. Yeah. Do you know the... the... We've, I've heard of it. I've, I've, <laughs> I've been exposed to one book and that was it. Exposed <laughs> to is not the right word to use on this program. <laughs> Okay, um, you know the different houses? Uh, know that there are houses, <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, so there are different houses in Harry Potter that the kids are sorted into, and there's this thing called the sorting hat, which sorts them into different houses. You put the hat on, and it reads your innermost thoughts mm. and feelings, oh, frightening. and it decides which house you go into because the different houses have different personalities. They were founded by different people who value different things in the wizarding world this is all common knowledge right yep following so you you got like houses like the the house names are slytherin hufflepuff gryffindor and i always forget what the what's the last one ravenclaw (laughs) nick why don't you you and i have this conversation (laughs) since you actually know what i'm talking about okay so this was uh, an article that was sent to me by nadia Karate on Twitter, but it was it was it was making the rounds, and this was an article that was published in the Journal of Surgical Education, and the title of the article is "The Sorting Hat of Medicine: Why Hufflepuffs Wear Stethoscopes and Slytherins Carry Scalpels," and the basic idea was they had this theory that different medical subspecialties have different personalities in the same way that different wizards have different personalities that sort them into different houses. And so they did a survey amongst physicians and asked them a bunch of questions, one of which was, which house do they believe that they would be sorted into? And then they looked at whether different medical specialties were disproportionately in different houses. So... 
I can't for the life of me understand how many people were actually in the study because the numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's, is this, is, this, is Harry Potter, Potter part of the medical school curriculum? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. First thing they study. No biostats, yeah. but. No. Uh, you don't yeah. need biostats. You need, <laughs> yeah. you need wizarding. So the. Uh, and by the way, I was interested. They were, they were, they had to tell which house they would be sorted into, but they could have chosen Muggle. Were they given a description of the houses, or they just knew because? Yeah. What would Jennifer and I do in this situation? We would would we choose based on name, like I do with horses. You know, I just or, I like or, I like or the purple NCAA one. Picks. Yep. <laughs> I, I I judge by the costumes or the uniforms. I can tell you. With certainty, they did not give any explanation because that is the that is survey the, right that there. That is the survey. Okay. Wow. And it just right. said simply, what Hogwarts house would you self-sort yourself into? And it gave the four houses. But here's what they found. Surgical specialties were found to have significantly fewer self-supported Hufflepuffs and more Slytherins than non-surgical specialties. General surgery had significantly more Gryffindors and fewer Hufflepuffs when compared to other specialties, whereas orthopedic surgery had significantly more Slytherins. Okay, now let me tell you about these houses. So Gryffindor favors courage, fortitude, and chivalry. Hufflepuff favors fidelity, diligence, and integrity. Ravenclaw favors wit, intelligence, and reason. And Slytherin favors ambition, resourcefulness, and leadership and guile. So, Nick, does this fit with what you would expect? Nick says yes. So that is a big old yes from Nick. So what was the specialty that chose the one with wit? Yeah. You're talking about the... The medical specialty. Well, I don't know. So the... the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the the wittiest. Well, one of the houses was, was Ravenclaw. Oh, Ravenclaw. Okay, okay yeah, so yeah. so which and, specialty and, yeah. favored Ravenclaw? Well, I didn't really. They didn't report <laughs> anything on Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. Okay, so there was more Ravenclaws. Okay, more Ravenclaws were surgical. Uh, were they all surgical? No, because they were surgical oh. and non-surgical. Oh. There was general, they were more likely to be in general surgery than were in Hufflepuff and Gryffindor. And uh, that's kind of all I can really make okay. from all of this. Less likely, oh, less likely to be in pediatrics. Okay. Um, Does that? The witty ones? The witty yeah. ones were less likely to be in pediatrics? Yeah. But, 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 so but am sad. I right, Nick, that, that Slytherin is the one that's like the evil one? It right? sounds Okay, so, evil. so Matt, so, where, with, which house do you identify? And could you expand this to, say, epidemiologists? Like if you were going to classify. Yeah, like the ID epi folks? Yeah. Okay, they so yeah. the, the yeah. social epidemiologists are the, those are the Slytherins. <laughs> the uh, ID folks, we are, we are the Hufflepuffs. And uh, the cancer folks are Gryffindor, and the mental health is Ravenclaw. What about the people who do just... I just made that they're up. They're methodologists. Like, where do they... Oh, the me- methodologists are muggles. Are they? Is, are, is that like sourpusses? No, muggles or are, like are humans. <laughs> this, is, this is so embarrassing, Nick. I am just... Okay. You are clearly muggles. And now I'm saying this. I, all I've ever seen is like two of the movies, because my daughter absolutely loves... Harry Potter. So I have watched many of the movies and I've been to the, oh, and I went to the Universal, the Universal uh, Studio is, tour yeah. in London. I hear it's great. Which is. You're a super fan. You are. I don't want to brag, but you know. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> maybe you do want to. <laughs> but, but my question about this, so this study, I mean, so I thought it was really interesting, except that 
it does seem to me it would suffer from social desirability bias, right, Nick? Because okay. oh, yeah. you don't want to admit if that you're, you're a, are Slytherin. a Slytherin. See, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, you get it. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to get, suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at, at ProfMadFox or Chris at ID.Gill or Jen at, at Jennifer, our writer, or Jennifer, I don't know yours, at... Uh, Epi. Wait, what are we talking? Emails Twitter. or Twitter? Twitter. Oh, it's Epi Dancer. No, no, Social Security number. Can you give out your credit card number? And- <laughs> uh, I don't. I'm not. I'm not of this world. Okay, so. you're you're not a muggle. Okay, <laughs> or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and managing the Sorting Hat. We want to thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Mm-hmm.